0: Remember, he is in a position of leadership. Someone who works in the White House doesn't go there in their blue jeans. They go there with leadership clothes. He would have done the same in Babylon. He would have been given rich clothes, but he humbles himself. He puts on sackcloth and literal ashes on his face. What is he saying? He's saying, God, I am but dust. I am nothing in your sight. I need your help, O God.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Broge, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we begin a study of Daniel chapter 9, a section of Scripture many have called the high point of the book of Daniel. This chapter gives us a clear picture of how God will culminate His plan for mankind through the nation Israel. Let's join Dr. Brugge now as he opens up this highly prophetic chapter.
0: Would you take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9. Many have called Daniel 9 the high point in the book of Daniel. There are many mountain peaks of prophecy in the book of Daniel, but Daniel 9 is really the Mount Everest of all of his visions. And indeed, your understanding of Daniel 9 Will influence your understanding of the great prophetic passages in the Word of God. What we find in the ninth chapter is God's blueprint, God's plan for the people of Israel. God's plan for Israel beginning with the first coming of Messiah all the way until the second coming, till his return from heaven. And Bible prophecy is very important for us to study because, in essence, it is history pre written. And when you understand, the importance of Bible prophecy, it will change your life. You will see that it's not peripheral to the purposes of God, but central. Nearly one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. Not just the major and minor prophets. A number of the Psalms are prophetic. Uh, there are some books in the New Testament, like First and Second Thessalonians, that are largely prophetic. Revelation, major sections like Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, 1 Peter Chapter three, Second Peter 3. So to ignore Bible prophecy is to ignore something that God deems is very important. All Scripture, including the prophetic passages, are given by God, and they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped for every good deed. In fact, only about half of all the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus have yet been fulfilled. When Paul gathered the Ephesian elders on a beach, he said to them, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And so if a pastor is to be faithful, he is to teach the whole plan of God. You can't just teach Daniel in the lion's den in this book. You have to teach the entire section because it's very important. And unfortunately, we live in a day where Bible prophecy is being downplayed. Rick Warren in his best-selling book the purpose-driven life, says this. He really mocks those who are studying Bible prophecy. He said, if you want Jesus to come back sooner, focus on your mission, not figuring out prophecy. And then he characterized the study of prophecy as, quote, a distraction in someone who is involved in it as not fit for the kingdom of God. But such a dismissal is not worthy of the Scripture. For in Revelation 19 and verse 10, the Bible says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So if you understand prophecy rightly, you are going to learn more and more about our great Savior whom He loves, whom we love. I hope you love Him. Let me give you five practical reasons by way of introduction as to why you should want to study Bible prophecy. First, prophecy reveals something about God's faithfulness. That God is true to His promises. You know, there are some people today, I know they mean well, but they're lacking understanding. They say that God is done with Israel, the church has become the new Israel. I wouldn't call them heretics, but I would call that a heresy. Because there are scores of promises in the Bible that affirm that God is not done with Israel. Israel. Promises that go all the way until the second coming of Christ. And to dismiss those is really to call God unfaithful unfa- and potentially a liar. Secondly, prophecy does much to demonstrate the inspiration of Scripture. There's no other book on the planet that has fulfilled prophecy except the Bible. There's none in the Quran, none in the Book of Mormon, none in the Upanishads, none in any religious book except the Holy Bible. Third, prophecy and its study helps to, us to understand our future as believers. God has a future for us. He is sovereign. He is in the heavens. He knows what He is about. He is not up there wrangling His hands over what is taking place in this world. And it gives you a sense of confidence that God is sovereign. Fourth, if you study prophecy, it will change your life. You will never be the same. In fact, virtually every command in Scripture that deals with prophecy, there's an exhortation as to how you should live, what you should do with that prophecy. And I can tell you, finally, it will make you a soul winner. Because my friend, there is coming a day when it's all going to be over. There's a lot of things we do now as a church that we will do in heaven. But there is one thing you will not do. You will not evangelize anyone in heaven. Now, when we come to the ninth chapter, we need to slow down just a little bit, though I'm gonna go like a rocket today to the introduction of the 70 weeks prophecy. Most people think of Daniel 9, they think the 70 weeks prophecy. It's one of the greatest prophecies in all of the Bible. It is a mathematical prophecy predicting the first coming of the Messiah. And many a Jew has been converted by studying it. But today we're going to look at the first 19 verses that really serve as an introduction into the 70 weeks prophecy. Now let me set the broad context here on this chart, if you remember, the book of Daniel divides into two parts. The first six chapters deal with Daniel and his personal friends, seven through 12 deal with Daniel and his people's future. The first half of the book is largely historical with a little bit of prophecy scattered in. The second half of the book is almost all prophetic with a little bit of history. And so 7 through 12 are filled with dreams and visions and important prophetic information as it relates to the future. And so remember 1 through 6, and I'll give you the chart again next week to refresh your mind, 1 through 6 happens chronologically. 7 through 12 happens chronologically, but not after 1 through 6. You could take chapters 7 through 12 and overlay them Between the events in 1 through 6, they happen in and around the events that are described there. So that's kind of the overview. Now, if you remember, here in the prophetic section, we've already looked at two major visions. The first vision in chapter 7, where it leaves Daniel with a troubled mind. The second vision in chapter 8, where it literally leaves him physically ill. If you remember, the first vision, god predicts the history of the gentile nations which is why the liberals love to put a late date on daniel but i'll show you even the late date that they put on it when we come to the 70 weeks prophecy and the 11th chapter still doesn't erase some of the prophecies fulfilled after it but it is so precise it is history pre-written jesus described daniel not as a historian but as daniel the prophet so The seventh chapter deals with the Gentile nations climaxing with the coming of the Antichrist. The second vision in chapter eight deals with Gentile history, and we saw why he began with the Greek empire, and he goes through Antiochus Epiphanes, its final ruler, who is a type, he's an illustration of the coming Antichrist. More is taught to us about the Antichrist. That's the popular name for this world ruler. There's actually about 40 different names in the Bible. And I suppose Antichrist is not a bad name, though it's not totally representative of this man's work. Anti in Greek, Antichristos, really doesn't mean uh, against Christ, so he is against Christ, but in the place of Christ. There's a man coming in the place of the Messiah who's going to try to deceive the world. Now, the first vision that we studied was given while Babylon was an empire. The second vision, and and we've noted, by the way, a number of important dates, Daniel is one of the most documented books in the Bible. So when you read the first year of Belshazzar, you don't have to figure it out just by what the Jews have historically told us. You can go to the Britannica Encyclopedia, and the date is nailed down. Daniel is one of the most documented books outside of the Bible in all of Scripture, And so we saw that first vision took place while the Babylonian empire was in place, Belshazzar being its last king. The second vision took place in chapter 8, if you remember, in the third year of Belshazzar. Again, Babylon had not yet fallen. When we come to this third vision here in chapter 9, Babylon has already fallen, and according to the opening verse, Darius is the king. So the historical setting is important for us to understand and really to get a grip on what this chapter is all about. Now again, most people think of Daniel 9 and its 70 weeks prophecy. But we must not forget that the 70 weeks prophecy that Gabriel brings to him comes in response to a prayer that he prays. And so here we're going to study this morning, as you can see there in your note-taking outline, the prayer of Daniel. And it's not simply instruction on how to pray or an exhortation to pray, but as much as anything, it is an example of how we ought to pray. So let's begin with the occasion for his prayer. We are given in the first two verses that information, not just the time of the prayer, but the text of the prayer. So let's consider here the time of the prayer. Look, if you will, at verse one and the start of verse two. We're told, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who is made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign. Now, you can put out in the margin, it's a hard, fast, well-documented date from human history, 538 B.C. You ought to write that out there. I see some of you with electronic Bibles, and I'm not against those. I think I had one of the first electronic Bibles, I was an original tester for the program we call today Logos in 1988. So I've had an electronic Bible for decades, but there is no substitute for a paper copy. You're a new Christian, you want to find the books of the Bible, you need to find them. You don't need to let the computer find them. You need to learn your way around, and you can write things out in the Bible that will stick to your soul. I promise you, having had an electronic Bible for decades, you will learn so much more if you have a paper copy when you come to church and worship. So put out there 538 BC. That becomes very, very important in understanding this chapter. I hope you remember King Darius in chapter 5, if you remember, it records the very last day of the Babylonian Empire. And if you recall, Belshazzar is the king. He is having a drunken party that night. He is using the holy utensils that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem, and he's mocking the God of Israel. And we are told in that chapter, in the final two verses, that same night. Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So his vision here in chapter 9 is very close to the experience that he has in the lion's den. It comes right after chapter 6. Remember, these visions in 7 through 12 fit in and among the chapters, and I'll give you that chart again in our next gathering. And so when we met Daniel, he was around 16, 17, maybe 18 years old, based on the Hebrew word that's used for youth. But when we leave Daniel at the end of the book, when he has this vision, he's an elderly man. He's around 85, 90 years of age. That's the time of his prayer. Let's consider the text of his prayer. We read here in verse 2, I, Daniel observed in the books the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he has the scrolls, it's on more than one scroll. Jeremiah is a big book. And he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. He's having his quiet time there. What is he reading? Well, take your Bible, turn to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. It's just to the left of Daniel, you'll find it easy. Jeremiah chapter 25. And I want you to notice, um, let me just set the, uh, the ministry of Jeremiah in your mind. If you remember, for the first 120 years, the kingdom of Israel was united under its first three kings. Saul, David, Solomon. They each ruled for 40 years, exactly 40 years, 120 years total. Because of the compromise of Solomon, God said, that he was going to tear the kingdom in two. And indeed he did. The ten northern tribes are known as Israel. Sometimes they're called Ephraim in the Old Testament. After one of the larger tribes, sometimes it's called uh, Israel in Samaria because the capital became not Jerusalem for these people, but Samaria. And that stuck for a century. So when a woman's from Samaria meets Jesus at a well, which place should we worship? In Jerusalem or in Samaria. And, of course, the southern two tribes, later on, they are attacked by Babylon. And we study that in the opening chapter of the book of Daniel. And so they're carried away. They're called Judah. So initially, sometimes you're reading the Bible, Israel is referring to all 12 tribes. But at a certain time, Israel's referring to just 10 tribes. And the two southern tribes after the larger of the two, namely Judah. And so here's a man who ministers to the southern kingdom to the southern tribes. Look at verse 8 of Jeremiah 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror hand of hissing, a horror hand a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, verse 10, I will take them from the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. That's a sermon itself. And the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. Verse 11, this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, just a few pages over. Jeremiah in this chapter deals with the false prophets of his day. And they said, it's not going to be 70 years. Just relax, take a deep breath. We're going to be delivered in a short amount of time. And so Jeremiah tells him, don't listen to these false teachers. Verse 5, he says, build houses and live in them. And plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Then in verse 8, he says, "'Don't listen to these guys, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel.'" Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years, there it is again, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Why 70 years? Why not seven years? Why not 270 years? God has a reason for everything he does. There are no accidents in the Bible. Put out in the margin next to Jeremiah 29 and 10, this text, Leviticus 25, 3 and 4. Leviticus 25, 3 and 4. As you're writing it, I'll read it. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Also put next to verse 10, 2 Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. Second Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. Those who have escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept until 70 years were complete. Now the principle of crop rotation and giving a piece of property rest actually comes from the Scriptures. And God knew in this fallen world that they needed to work the land six years and let it rest one year. And of course, it was an act of faith in the sixth year to believe God when they weren't growing any crops to provide for their food needs, and he did. The problem was is they became faithless, and so for 490 years, they ignored the clear command of God. God kept selling, telling them by his prophets, don't do this, don't do this. They didn't listen to him, and so God says, okay, you won't give my land rest? Then I'll give it rest. And so the time of this deportation to Babylon is 70 years by a purpose. Now back in Daniel 9, go back to Daniel 9. Remember, uh, the 70 years begins when Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, most of us know them by their pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We should know them by their Jewish names. That's when the deportation begins in 605 B.C., and there are three times they're carried away. That's all by introduction back in the opening sermon to this book. And so that's 605 B.C. This is 538 B.C. This is the first year of Darius' reign. What does that tell you? It tells you that 67 of the 70 years had gone by. And so Daniel recognizes that he is living on the threshold of the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy. I, Daniel, verse 2, observed in the books the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. By the way, Daniel believed in a literal interpretation of prophecy. Most of our Reformed friends today that use that label, that have stolen a good label, just like our charismatic friends have stolen a good label. I'm a charismatic in that I believe that God gives spiritual gifts. If you believe in the five solars of the Reformation, then you're Reformed. Nonetheless, people today who call themselves Reformed, when they look at the 70-week prophecy of Daniel... They say the 70th week, and it's going to be divided, that prophecy into three parts, has already been fulfilled. What are they doing? They are spiritualizing prophecy. And so Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible but one, Revelation because he didn't know what to do with Revelation. He was mixed up on his ecclesiology and that made him mixed up on his eschatology. And if you spiritualize prophecy like Augustine and Calvin did, you will come to some very different kinds of conclusions. But modeled within the prophets themselves, modeled within the Lord Jesus' teaching, modeled within the writers of the rest of the New Testament, they always interpreted prophecy with the same method of interpretation for the rest of Scripture with a literal, grammatical, historical principle or hermeneutic. All right? So Daniel believed 70 years meant 70 years. That shouldn't shock us. That's the occasion for his prayer. Secondly, you with me? All right, the humility in his prayer. Let's think about the humility in his prayer. You know, when you pray, God's not interested just in the words you use as much as he is with the attitude of your heart. And we learn that this man first prays a very attentive prayer. Verse three says, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication. Two words, first prayer It's a Hebrew word that means intercession, when you pray for someone else. And then supplications. It's a Hebrew word that means a request for mercy. So here's Daniel, and he said, I gave my attention to the Lord. I like the King James here because it's the most literal. It it just literally interprets the Hebrew. I set my face unto the Lord your God. Have you ever set your face to seek God in prayer. You see, many times we have casual kind of take it or leave it kind of prayer. But Daniel sets his face. He recognizes that God needs his full attention, that God is the most important person in the world. Jesus highlights this principle in Matthew 6, 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so while we are to pray without ceasing, while we are to be in a spirit of prayer, there are times when we go into whatever your prayer closet is, your car, I literally have a closet in my home where I hang my clothes. I've got a closet in my office where I shut out the whole world and I seek God's face. It's a form of humility. Daniel said, I set my face to the Lord God. I gave him my full attention. So it's an attentive prayer. Secondly, he prayed a broken prayer. He prayed a broken prayer. Now, when we studied Daniel 6, which is the time frame again which this prophecy takes place, we learned something about the frequency of his prayer. At least three times a day, he shut himself up to pray to God. But here we learn something about the fervency he has in prayer. Look at verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He uses... Fasting added to it sackcloth and ashes, which speaks of intensity. Remember, he is in a position of leadership. Someone who works in the White House doesn't go there in their blue jeans. They go there with leadership clothes. He would have done the same in Babylon. He would have been given rich clothes, but he humbles himself. He puts on sackcloth and literal ashes on his face. What is he saying? He's saying, God, I am but dust. I am nothing in your hands. Sight, I need your help, O God. And so that's how Old Testament saints expressed it. Now, one common trait of his prayer that carries over into the New Covenant is that of fasting. I'm not saying you shouldn't put on sackcloth or ashes, but there are no examples in the New Testament. But certainly today, even in Jewish thinking and in the average Christian who knows the Word of God, which makes him not an average person because most Christians no longer know their Bibles, they recognize that fasting is a form of humility before God. One of the most commonly asked questions we've had over the years in the Bible line and that people will ask me in the hallways is, should we fast today? So let me speak for just a moment and to put fasting and the context of the day in which we live it. First of all, fasting is not dieting. It's not dieting. Uh, You know, as a pastor, I get Christian or pastoral spam. And one that came to my inbox was entitled "Fastings for Blessings. Let me read a portion of it to you. The founder of this ministry said, You're about to step into the shower when the mirror catches your eye. What do you see? Look at your waist, your arms, your hips, that tummy. Does the sight of those bulges and rolls depress you? And when you get on the scale, do you think to yourself, this is awful. I can't go on like this. Something has to be done. If you're in that situation, take heart. You're about to read something that will make your spirit sing with joy and relief. And then he gives a series of testimonies. Here's SP from Oregon. Fasting really works. Thanks to your program, Help the Devil Wants Me Fat, and God's Strength. I was able to finally gain control of my appetite. At first, I couldn't believe it was really working, but as time went on, I realized the program really works. I never dreamed I could lose my cravings for sweets, but I did, praise God. I lost 18 pounds on the 10th day of my fast, and my eating habits have totally changed. I wouldn't have believed it was possible, but it happened to me. Now, I'm not giving any endorsement to this ministry, but let me clearly say fasting is not dieting, it's not done to lose weight. You may lose weight but it is not done to lose weight.
1: A fast, as defined in the Bible, is either no food and no water, which you could do for a short time, or typically simply no food. And we'll pick up on this topic in our next installment of our study of Daniel. To listen again to this or any of the messages in the series on Daniel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN12. Tomorrow we continue our look at the prayer of Daniel. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.